Friends, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. That's going to be our text for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And uh, my prayer, as I have prayed this week, is uh, that we would receive something of the deep consolation of which we just heard sung from this powerful word this morning. So thank you for that. That was beautiful. Um, but uh, we, a couple of weeks ago, before Dr. Taylor was here last week, uh, Knox actually started us through First Peter, and we found out that that's the direction that we're going to head as a congregation for the foreseeable future. And so we're going to be in First Peter, uh, and he studied from uh, the first passage in uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, and as I was preparing, Knox said, you know, take whatever you would like from this, um, and, and just go preach in First Peter. I couldn't help but be overcome by what God was saying to these suffering people in verses 10 through 12. And so uh, let's hear God's word to us this morning, and uh, we'll read his word beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings, and the, sub, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask his help as we come to this time. Gracious Father, we ask uh, by the power of your son's shed blood and the illumination of your spirit that you would grant us something of a sense of comfort that Peter is offering to your suffering church in this passage. May we leave this time this morning with the realization that you will bear us up on eagle's wings, and would we have a sense in which you are hiding us in the palm of your everlasting and powerful hands. We pray this according to the matchless name of our blessed Savior and High Priest who sits in heaven, Jesus Christ. Come now, Lord, quickly, we pray. Amen. So at the early stages of the pandemic in March of 2020, I found myself, like many people, trying to peruse the internet for any collective sense of what the mess was going on. And I stumbled across an article from the Harvard Business Review that went viral for how it articulated what people were experiencing at that time. This was two weeks after the shutdown, or maybe a week after the shutdown had just been announced, and it recounted the story, the author, of how the people uh, on the Harvard Business Review staff were logging into a Zoom meeting like everyone was in those days. And they were trying to make sense with this sort of check-in from their uh, staff. How is everyone doing? And everyone was articulating this just really strange sense of discomfort. 
this really strange sense of they didn't know what to expect. Uh, there were varied expressions of sadness, anger, frustration, trying to make sense of just what the mess was going on. And then one woman said, I, I've got a word for it, I think it's grief. And it was such a powerful word in that moment to say, we're all collectively experiencing grief for that staff that they actually invited David Kessler, who's one of the world-renowned experts of grief, to come and just do a, a written interview with them about whether this was right. Is this, is this how we should feel or is this how we should name this grief? Uh, from their collective sense of what was going on from the pandemic. And that it's titled, That Discomfort That You Actually Feel Is Grief. And the article from there, uh, Kessler recounts in his interview, he confirmed that that general sense of discomfort was, in fact, grief. The fact that it was grief explained how there were so many different manifestations of people's responses. For example, there was anger. You're making me stay home and taking away my life? There was bargaining. Well, if I stay home for two weeks, then everything will be better. There was sadness. I don't know when this will end, and I'm not sure what to expect in the future. And further complicating the situation was that anticipatory nature of grief. You're just not sure what's next in the midst of such a fiery trial. And then finally, the last sort of step of recognizing that it was grief was the hope that people could get to the point of acceptance because that's where the power of grief lay. The moment that, that Kessler said, the moment that you realize acceptance is one of those stages of grief is the moment that you're granted control. And Peter actually is writing similarly to a group of grieving people. He, he, he says that they have great hope. They have great joy in the salvation that's been revealed in verse 5. And they're able to rejoice even in the midst of various trials that they're facing. And that's what's going on in this passage for these people who are suffering. They're grieved by the various sense of trials that they're experiencing. But Peter is not just trying to offer them a sense of acceptance, hopefully leading to a fleeting sense of control over their situation. He's actually trying to offer them a consoling confidence that even in the midst of their trial, they are right where God would have them. And that's, that's what he's writing about. That's the big idea of what he's saying. He, he wants them to see that the consistent message of the gospel produces consoling confidence for the hour of our greatest trials. And he, he's been arguing that essentially through the first nine verses of this passage before he gets to verse 10, and he begins to call on the collective witness of the prophets. And that's what I want us to see this morning, though, is that it's only when we grasp the consistent message of the gospel that we're actually able to endure trial with a consoling confidence. And that's going to be our headings for how we actually look at this passage this morning. Just two brief points. There's the consistent message of the gospel, and then there's the consoling confidence that this produces. A consistent message and a consoling confidence. But to pick back up into the argument of what Peter has been uh, essentially saying is, he, he says in verse 10, concerning this salvation, uh, it's, it's the word in Greek, soteria. It, it, it means the deliverance, salvation, and help which God has given to his people. 
And it refers to the liberation that believers know from evil powers of the age that we're in and the ultimate sense of the final deliverance that God will accomplish for his people. There's a, there's a sort of already but not yet way that Peter has been saying this salvation has been received by these suffering believers. And these are believers that are suffering various trials. They're, they're suffering because of their faithfulness to the name of Jesus. They're suffering, uh, uh, some of them are facing death and, and, and destruction by simply bearing witness. They're in the midst of a hostile culture. And then they're, they're in the midst of a place that it's just not easy to follow Jesus because they're also in a fallen world. And he's saying that this salvation that was proclaimed to you beforehand has been mentioned before. It was a consistent message that had various recipients. Peter's referenced this earlier salvation as the living hope that they had received through their risen Savior. And he's using this word salvation as a synonym for also the inheritance that he's talking about. And that word inheritance, one of the things I love about First Peter, his first epistle, is the way it's, it's full of Old Testament imagery. It's full of words that would have meant significant things to a Jewish audience. And that word inheritance that he uses in verse 4 is, is a synonym to describe the salvation. It, it, uh, it's, it's the inheritance that came because of Jesus' death. But to Old Testament believers, that inheritance was geared around the promise of God's people that they would be given a land, that it was real and tangible, and that he was preparing them for it even in the midst of their fiery journey to get there. But he also says in verse 5, there's this not yet aspect to that inheritance. There's a salvation that remains to be revealed in the last time. And so that's what he's actually talking about. He's talking about their collective hope that the inheritance of what they have received and the promises of the gospel, that it's not done yet. And in fact, it's not just that it's not done, it's, it's, it's the consistent message that the prophets prophesied beforehand. It, when you look at the Old Testament scriptures, this is the not yet aspect. It, it, he says it was received by those prophets beforehand, and uh, this isn't the first time it's been prophesied or heard all of God's prophets testified to it. And he's not just saying Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the, the, the book of the minor prophets, the 12, as it's called in the Hebrew scriptures. He's saying every prophetic witness, every person who prophesied in scripture, from Moses to Malachi, he's got the entire Old Testament scripture in his mind when he says this. And he says, the prophets also prophesied this hope. It was a message that was consistent because the exact same message that was received by God's people in the history of redemption. But it's also the message that's been consistently proclaimed throughout the ages. If you look ahead to verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. He's saying the sense of salvation, that there was this Old Testament deliverance that God had bought his people in a land, a possession, a place that they were going, and there was a final deliverance to come. 
That's the consistent message that was received and proclaimed to this audience. Because these believers are suffering. And they're in the midst of trying to understand, did we get the message right? Like, did, 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 we, did we misunderstand something? Like, why are our lives so horrible? Because that's how you and I typically respond to suffering. And trials of various kinds, as Peter's actually talking about here. We sort of question whether there's any consistency as to what we've heard. We feel as if we're missing God's promises when our lives turn towards a pattern of suffering. But he's saying that they can be confident in the consistent message because it was proclaimed beforehand. And there was a consistent speaker active in both sort of proclamations and in the way that the message of the gospel has been received. In the Old Testament, it was the Spirit who was working through men. And in the New Testament, it's the same Spirit who's been sent from heaven to proclaim and announce these things to you. He's referencing Pentecost there. The day where the Spirit of God descended upon the New Testament church as they were awaiting the promises of sort of what's next, Jesus? We're in, we're in uh, Jerusalem. What do we do now? Because they had been told by their by, by their Savior, Jesus, go to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit, essentially. And so he's saying it's a consistent message that was received by the prophets. It was a consistent speaker, but it also had a consistent content. There's been no change in the gospel message as you heard it previously proclaimed. And as if you heard it now proclaimed... Because the message that the prophets heard, he says in verse 11. They heard about this grace that was to be ours, theirs. So that they searched and inquired carefully. Asking what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The message that they heard came in the context that what these prophets and people of God throughout the Old Testament heard was this amazing promise, not just that they would receive an inheritance, a place to dwell, that they would be God's special people, or that he would dwell with them forever in that land, but they heard a consistent message about a person who was coming, the Messiah, Jesus. And what Peter is saying to these people, saying, guys, this, you're prone to question the message right now because you're in the midst of a fiery trial. But it's, it's the same because God has sweetly and tenderly and faithfully proclaimed it throughout the ages. That the sufferings that you're in are part of these sufferings that were sort of proclaimed by the Messiah beforehand, related to his person and work. But the insinuation would be to Peter's audience, if you find yourself in this pattern of sufferings, you should be looking also for the glories yet to come. Because that's what he's actually saying. He's saying these glories to come. 
That's what you can hope for in the midst of this fiery trial in which you find yourselves. So it's a consistent message with a consistent recipient, consistent content, and a consistent speaker. And there's incredibly consoling confidence in the midst of this message. But before we go to the confidence, let's look at what Peter is actually saying about God's word. Like, how is he actually using his argument here to say what you've heard has been consistently proclaimed? There's two aspects. Peter is making an incredible observation, and he wants the people who he's preaching to and writing to to connect the dots of their own personal suffering to their situation Uh, to Christ's greater sufferings. And the incredible observation is this, that that, uh, it's it's an observation essentially about the unity and the inspiration of Scripture. And when it comes to unity, what, what Peter is saying, this message of suffering to glory that you've heard me proclaim to you, that the prophets proclaimed beforehand, it's actually the fundamental theme of the Bible. It's the fundamental theme that God in his purposes and amongst his people works out a pattern of the sufferings that come through the glories that await them. Because that was the Messiah's pattern. And if you are the people of the the prophesied Messiah, then you can actually expect the same pattern to be at work in your life. But it's because of Scripture's unified message that you can actually bank on this. Edmund Clowney is a commentator who, who, who says this in his commentary on this passage. The pattern is sufferings now, then glories to follow. It was a pattern predicted for the Messiah and the Old Testament. Glory is the goal of all the Old Testament promises. A cursory reading of the Old Testament prophets will give you that. The final vision of the Old Testament is the restoration of all that had been lost. But the Old Testament also speaks of sufferings, of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. Suffering precedes glory because the precious blood of the Lamb of God opens glory to believers. And Peter's telling us that this is the one story that's been proclaimed throughout the ages of God's active work amidst his people. But he's also saying something about inspiration. The inspiration of Scripture. He's revealing something about how the inspiration of Scripture actually works. And if you flip over in your Bibles, uh, just briefly, like two or three pages, to 2 Peter 1, verse 16 to 21, he actually fills this out even more to the same audience. Because, again, he, he writes a second epistle to the same group, and they're still suffering, and they're like, are you sure that we didn't get the message right? Or, or that we got it right. And he says this, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice boom for, born from heaven For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, 
to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter saying, friends who are in the midst of a fiery trial. This is the same consistent message that you've heard And it's the very word of God. It's the very word of the God of the universe to speak to his suffering people, even in the circumstances that they're facing, and to tell them, this is actually the pattern that my redemptive work in history follows. Because it's that same message that was proclaimed to the prophets. And and scripture says that it's almost like wind filling a sail that the the Spirit picked these men up and moved them along, carrying them, bearing them by the Spirit's influence. And yet, our passage tells us that they were aware of what was being said to them. They they knew and they could sense, and they were trying to make sense with God's Spirit. God, can you please make it clear to me? It seems like you're doing something amazing, but when and who will this come through? And the answer was Jesus, and the Spirit made that clear. But that's different from other faiths and world religions that actually speak about how they receive their holy scriptures. For example, uh, Muhammad. The story of Muhammad is, is he had a vision of the angel Gabriel over him holding a sword while he was sort of having this out-of-body experience seeming. And, the, and, and, and Gabriel says, right, like growlingly at him. And he's like, what, all right, give me a pen, like I'll do it. Or Joseph Smith in, in, in the Book of Mormon. Uh, his, the, the sense of inspiration or, or prophecy is, that he received about the Book of Mormon is really a form of, another form of dictation. That he had some sort of special tablets that he looked at and uh, that was the message that was revealed to him. And he was supposed to just write it down. Peter's saying, no, God himself spoke, not as a form of dictation, but as the inspired word that these prophets themselves, as they heard the message, they they realized what it was. They knew the consistent pattern of suffering to glory. And their, their hope was aroused within them, even though they never received the promise of what was to come. Because it was so clear that God was speaking It was a clear pattern, a consistent pattern with a common speaker and God himself spoke it before. And if you think of the places that Peter could have pointed them to in the midst of their trial that they're in, he actually references his eyewitness testimony of the glory of Jesus in 2 Peter that we just read. And he says, yet we have something still more sure, more fully confirmed in the prophetic word. Friends, that tells us that the unchanging witness of Scripture 
is the song of salvation that's been proclaimed through the ages. And it's proclaimed throughout the entire scope of God's word so that it's driving towards the purpose of God's redemptive plan through Jesus. And it is God's own testimony about himself so that in the midst of their fiery trials, they're actually secured and comforted by the fact that God himself has sworn this is the truth of what I can expect. And that's the incredible observation he's, he's making about Scripture. He's saying, guys, this is God's word. The implication would be that it is an unbreakable oath that God himself has sworn. So can anything really keep you from inheriting the fulfillment of these promises? The answer is no. And there's a second thing that Peter wants them to do with this statement. He wants them to connect the dots of their own suffering. You know, it's a common problem to be grieved by suffering and let it distort our picture of Christ and our walk with him, isn't it? Uh, when suffering comes, we find ourselves grieved by various trials. It's a spouse who suddenly leaves us or says they want a divorce in their marriage. A child who professes they never really believe the gospel. A disease that steals our joy for how it robs our health and mires us in the sting of death. A world or community that maligns us for simply trying to live according to our Christian convictions and do what is right. A relationship marked by death by the lack of someone's presence. Or it's just the simple fact of living with integrity. There's this confusing disorientation that trials produce that God's people will always feel. And Peter himself knew it. Think back to, uh, think back to when Jesus proclaims uh, that I'm, I am the one who was to come and I'm actually going to die. Matthew 16. I'll read it real quick for us. You don't have to flip there. Matthew 16. From that time forth, this is after Peter's confession of Jesus. That's what this passage is sort of known for. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise again. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you do not want the things of God. It's such a comfort that the closest disciples of Jesus, Peter, who saw him transfigured in glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus said, this is my mission, fellas, Peter said, uh, Lord, I, th I think you might, be, maybe you might be misunderstood. I think you're misunderstanding what, what is really the purpose for the Messiah. Because Peter knows our own disorientation and confusion that come through trial. And it's not just Peter, it's the disciples. After Jesus was literally risen from the dead, he's walking along the road to Emmaus. And he says, this is actually what all of the prophets and scriptures testify to. He literally walks to disciples through that pattern of suffering and glory, Luke tells us in Luke 22, or 24. And he says, guys, 
this is what the Messiah was about to be because they were discouraged that the promises of the Messiah were not true. So Jesus himself has testified to this. And that consistent message is sufferings then glories. So that the question for us that we have to begin to ask and that Peter is actually driving towards is, this is the consoling confidence of God's people throughout the ages. You know, there's several ways that we try to make meaning out of our suffering. Just like Kessler said in the opening illustration. Some of us have a, we we take a a perspective uh, on suffering that's, uh, someone's sinned and done something wrong and that's why I or others suffer. And so we live with guilt and fear uh, or we live with suspicion of others. Or some of us think uh, we suffer because of a confused view of providence and fate. We think we have to endure suffering nobly so that God can actually purify us and sanctify us to become more like Jesus. Are, are these things necessarily wrong in themselves? No, they're actually true explanations for the purposes behind suffering. But what Peter is drawing his audience's attention to, he's saying, your tendency is to look for a purpose behind your suffering when really you need to look for a pattern. And the pattern of God's people throughout the ages has been suffering, then glory. And nothing that you currently experience can actually keep you from inheriting the promised glory that God himself has sworn and will not come untrue that his people will be brought home. The salvation, the final deliverance that Peter's been referencing follows a pattern. And that pattern is first suffering and then glory. But some of us struggle even to to find any purpose because in, in the West, Tim Keller says this in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says, in the West, it's our unique contribution to the sort of conversation about how you explain pain and suffering in society that the West says, there's no real explanation. It's just an interruption on life. We believe it's functionally purposeless. And that aching purposelessness is what haunts us in the very heart of our most terrible trials. But friends, God says, there's actually a purpose. We may not know what it is, but that purpose is always going to follow that pattern. Suffering to glory. And again, it's not that any of these single explanations of suffering are wrong fully in and of themselves. But that they're only part of the story. And they become a paradigm for how we relate to ourselves and others. When what God would want is for us to be consoled by the confidence we have in this consistent message. And so how does this console us? Well, there's at least two or three ways. It consoles us in the broader pattern that Scripture speaks of. Um, This this problem of suffering has always been a problem throughout the history of the church. Keller talks about this again in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He says, one of the actual responses of the medieval church was that they got to a view that said, bearing suffering 
uh, without complaint actually can merit you salvation. And I don't think anyone would probably believe that. But when Martin Luther read and saw this, he got to a place to where uh, he recognized that there were actually two theologies of suffering at play in the hearts of God's people in history. One was the theology of glory. And the theology of glory is that uh, the world expects a God who is strong and whose followers are blessed and successful only as they summon up all their strength and follow his laws without fail. But that's not a consistent biblical theology of the message God has given that Luther said. What we should have is a theology of suffering that reflects the cross, that it's actually at our greatest weakness, it's at our greatest point of pain that God himself is working redemptively in the midst of our suffering. That's a theology of the cross. It reflects the fact that when we look at the life of Christ, we see the startling reality that one of the deepest revelations of the character of God is one where he steps into the cross, suffers as man, and dies for our sins. And it's why Paul could write in Corinthians that God has used the message of the cross to shame the world. Because in the world's wisdom, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you can have hope in the midst of your suffering. It doesn't make sense that you can actually believe God is working redemptively in the midst of your suffering. But what Peter is saying is, yes, it does. And that's actually the pattern that we have to define ourselves by in the midst of our suffering. So you have to ask yourself, what is your perspective in trials? Do you let... Do we let our lives be shaped by the expectations that God is closest when our lives are most successful? And we feel distant when they're not. Or do you realize that it's when you are weak that Christ is producing strength? Friends, there's no hope to persevere in the midst of fiery trials if we do not first comprehend that our Savior has worn weakness so that in our weakness, he will make us strong. That's one pattern of the consoling confidence. It gives us strength to endure because he's at work. But it also gives us incredible fellowship, if you look at what Peter's saying. It's a privileged fellowship. Because the same Spirit of Christ who proclaimed this through the ages is the same Spirit who announced it through the gospel, who is present with his people as they suffer. So that God is not far and distant, some remote deity that we have to appease by how we respond. But he's actually near and close and with us in the midst of our weakness, giving us the gift of companionship so that our tears are not actually purposeless. They are carried faithfully by him who weeps with us in the midst of our suffering. Because he's near and he's using it. 
And it's a sacred privilege because it's what all of redemptive history is working towards. Look at what he says about the angels. The very angels of heaven who minister in the presence of a holy God. They long to look into the realities of what's been revealed to us. In the person and work of the Son, Jesus Christ, it's been applied to us by the power of His Spirit. And the angels of heaven who live before the glory of God long to look at the majestic, privileged beauty of God working redemption in the history of His people. So that we actually share the sufferings of Christ. Calvin says this, he says, From this we receive remarkable consolation, that in the midst of dark and difficult circumstances, which we consider hostile and evil, we share in Christ's sufferings. If it has been allotted to us to share in his death, then we are prepared to share in glory of his resurrection. How perfectly suited this reality is to lessening the severity of every cross. The more we are afflicted with adverse circumstances, so much more certainty is our communion with Christ confirmed. By virtue of this communion, sufferings themselves not only become blessings to us, but they also serve to promote our salvation. Friends, where do you trace the trials of your suffering right now? Is it in your relationships? Is it in the secret, unseen things that you've not even named to your close friends? Is it it in the collective sorrow that our church feels as a body at this point in its life? Friends, our God would tell us this is the moment where he is working redemptively to bear out conformity to his son, to make us more like Jesus. So that we are consoled that his work so far actually bears witness to his work to come. The reality of the sufferings and the after that glories. That's that's how it's actually structured in the Greek. First the sufferings and then after the sufferings, glories. This is the salvation that we've received. This is the promise that is strengthening these believers to endure a fiery trial. And if we will listen to this consistent message of the gospel, proclaimed in the pages of all of God's holy, inspired word, we will find ourselves equipped with a similar confidence, consoled that even in our trials, he is working out glories. This, uh, this is actually uh, was prevalent to me in the life of one of my dear friends, Jay. And uh, I don't know who I've told this story to in the church, but Jay Jackson, he's, he's actually the man who I named my first son's middle name after, Caleb. Caleb Jackson is his middle name. And the reason I did was because he was a dear friend who uh, suffered well. And at the age of 25, uh, he, he himself would have told you he was a proud man who felt on top of the world, but he started having headaches. And uh, he, he, the headaches that he was experiencing, he went to an eye doctor, he had some blurred vision too. Uh, it was actually a glioma tumor in his head that he fought initially and then actually went into remission over. 
but it came back. And as the Gileoma tumor came back, it was just this incredible period of unspeakable suffering in my friend's life. I mean, to the point to where what ravaged his body was more the chemo at that point than the, um, than the tumor itself, but it was also bearing out horrible consequences for his health. Couldn't dress himself, couldn't bathe himself. Uh, he, he had to have full help uh, towards the end of his days. And it was remarkable to see that what actually flowed forth from him was not confused contempt or the purposelessness of what God was doing, but it was a grateful gratitude that God was even hand-tailoring these painful trials as blessings to conform him to the image of Jesus. And that's what he looked like. And that's the beauty of the gospel's message, friends. This message bears out a consoling confidence because even as my friend faced death, he felt more alive than ever. And now he is more alive because he was called home to glory. So that there didn't have to be this really sweet sort of like Bible-stamped resolution of suffering in this life. Because for Christians... What actually is the case is that not even death itself defeats the redemptive purposes of God. And that's the power of our hope that consoles us for the day that is yet to come. So may God, by his spirit, so produce a hope in us that leaves us consoled by this grace that is yet to be revealed for us. And may we feast on his inspired word to help us learn to look for it more. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and we pray the utter weakness that we feel for our lives. Sometimes it's the weakness of a simple faithfulness in this world. Sometimes it's the weakness of our own inadequacies inadequacies and sins. Sometimes, Father, it's the weakness of all of the catastrophic things that would happen in this world. And yet it's in that that the gospel proclaims hope, a sure and steadfast hope, an anchor in the name of Jesus that enters into the veil of the Holy of Holies where you, Lord Jesus, have gone before us because you have tethered us to our heavenly home. And so help us to learn as a people in this season to hope in the confidence you've given us that it's not some placebo effect, but a sure and steadfast promise and a sacred presence of your fellowship with us that would bind us together as a people right now. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends.